If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thank you for listening to Knocking Doors Down, brought to you by KDD Media Company. I had this reputation that I wanted to keep up, that I was like some big bad guy, when the reality was I was a scared little boy inside and the drugs just was this facade that I could handle different situations. Cops kicking in the door, getting arrested, fist fights. Welcome to Knocking Doors Down. Jason Lachance, your host here with you, and Mikey Naraki as well. What's up, good sir? What is going on, people? Of course, I've got a background of addiction, some uh, childhood trauma, been through divorce, lots of other life experiences that have led me here to uh, helping other folks, such as yourself and all the listeners, and speaking with these great guests that we get, Mikey. That's right. That's May, right. Mike been through some stuff himself. May have gotten myself busted a time or two. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, right. So again, we're here to show you that your greatest adversities can become your greatest advantages. And uh, our guest today, Matt Ganim, the poet, no different. He's not only a poet, a musician, but he's also the leader of a treatment center now, part mm-hmm. of the Banyan family, and uh, an amazing story. You know, you're going to hear some broken childhood stuff, kind of, uh, you know, that insecure nature that often leads a lot of of us to our addictions, you know, uh, mental and emotional inability to regulate ourselves. And uh, he's doing just wonderful things. And he's he's found his outlet, his purpose, not only with, with his poetry, his music, uh, helping others get into treatment, stay clean and sober, but also he's a father and, uh, you know, he's an amazing guy. So it's a really great conversation. Yeah, that's right, man. And before we jump to Matt, I want to remind you, you can go to kddmediacompany.com and purchase Carlos Vieira's book, Knock doors down the autobiography that inspired this podcast and what we're doing and reaching out to all you folks sharing these amazing stories of all these people that have turned their lives around and are living a purposeful life and carlos's book is an example that it's no different that uh you too can overcome whatever that adversity is if it's addiction maybe it's a mental or emotional health issue whatever it may be childhood trauma all of us tend to have something there but we can end up turning that all around and making it our advantage. So don't forget the Knocking Doors Down book at kddmediacompany.com, uh, hardback, paperback, and you can also get the ebook through Amazon. All right, we've got Matt Ganim for you. Matt Ganim, welcome to Knocking Doors Down. How are you doing today, brother? Living my best life, my friend. <laughs> Trying to survive this quarantine and isolation. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, what you, uh, I mean... As someone that that has come from uh, you know a background of addiction, which we're going to get into your your history, the amazing work you're doing now, actually being executive director of a treatment facility, which is awesome. Talk about a, a 180 for the positive. How are you handling uh, this COVID type of situation? Because really, uh, you know. As someone of addiction myself, uh, connectivity to others is such a big deal for me right now. Um, I mean, the opposite—the opposite of addiction is connection, and having everybody getting like put into forced isolation kind of goes against everything that recovery is based off of. Yeah, you know what I mean. Having that support system, having that person you can lean on when you're going through a hard time. Where now in Massachusetts, we've been hit pretty hard with it. So we've been on lockdown. I know out in California, you guys have been as well. But it's like, you know, 
a lot of people are struggling. A lot of people yeah. that they, they use their different supports, their different supports have been cut off right now. And Zoom, Zoom is great. You, you know, you get to go to different meetings, you get to meet people from all over the country. But having that that personal experience of, of your network in person, you know, I'm like a, a big guy on love. I like handshakes and hugs and, yeah. and letting people know I love them. You I'm the same I mean? way. So, yeah, I'm big so handshake hug. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So not, you know, sometimes I go up and it's like, you know, people are scared to, to, to give handshakes nowadays. So it's a, it's a little stressful. I mean, with the center, the center was difficult. We kept it open for a while. And, and more recently, I think about three weeks ago, we had to do start doing things remotely, mm. uh, doing our groups and our therapy and, and meeting with our nurse practitioner uh, through Zoom um, just due to like um, – our governor saying that the, you know, the peak of, of this coronavirus was going to hit and, and some things that happened. So, you know, it just, it's difficult. And talking to some of the clients, like this used to be like their safe haven through this. They could come here, you know, different people, you know, everybody's going through the same thing. So having that, you know, those people that can relate to it and having the staff there to support them through it was huge. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the last couple of weeks have been a little more difficult. I'm uh, trying to do everything remotely. It's just not something that that recovery is, you know, the, the, the intimate feeling of having somebody be there for you, yeah. you know, in person. Like that goes a long way. Just being able to talk to somebody, talk them off a ledge or sure, you know, yeah. if they're going through it where now you're sitting in front of a computer screen and you're in isolation. So you go on your Zoom meeting or you're talking to somebody for a little bit and then you're trapped in your head in your house. And they're telling you you can't leave, you can't do normal things. I mean, I know a lot of people who go to the gym as one of the outlets. Mm-hmm. Gym's closed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After you go to a meeting or an event, it's like, all right, let's get dinner. Oh, wait, you can't go to a restaurant. Yeah. So, like, certain aspects of life that, like, where you fellowship, where you network, where you build your relationships have been cut off right now. So, it's a very trying time for people in recovery. It's yeah. very difficult. How's Massachusetts doing with all that? Have you guys opened anything at all in your area? Uh, we're, like, slow, we're, we're slowly starting to. Uh-huh. Um, I think the beaches, the beaches open the twenty fifth. Oh, okay, but you can't you can't sit in one place. I think you have to keep walking with masks on. It's it's insanity out here. Dang, yeah, that's uh, it, it is all over the and place. If, we're, our luck is that we're located in the Central Valley of California, so it's ag area, a little yep. bit more spread out. But I know my friends okay. that are in the, the Bay Area and, and L.A. And, and stuff, it's just it's even it more amplified for them due to, you know, the, the, yeah. the congestion of, of the mass amount of people. Whereas, you know, here, you know, my neighborhood, we can we can walk on the different sides of the street. Where, you know, I can take my kids for a walk and other yeah, family, yeah. you know what I'm saying? But, man, it's... Uh, it's definitely been a game changer, and I know for me as someone that, uh, again, like I said, that connectivity, and like you're saying, addiction is the opposite of connectivity because eventually we all go into isolation, which I know you're going to talk about here when we get more into your story. But, um, yeah, huge challenge. I, I've had to be uh, more resourceful than ever, and I think a lot of people really have, and, and hopefully they're having having those connections. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's one of the things that, that as addicts and alcoholics, we adapt to our circumstances. Yeah. So yeah. Some of us are able to you know, take it in stride and, and it's open new doors. I mean, I've talked to some people um, where meetings were a big thing in their life and they got away from it recently, but now having the Zoom, you know, Zoom meetings at all hours, it's brought them back to like the fellowship. Sure. So, I mean, there's some silver lining in all this too, where, you know, some people that might have strayed now, it's something as easy as picking up your phone, going on Zoom to hear a message. 
So, I mean, the access to it's a little better mm-hmm. um, if you want to look for, like, a silver lining in all this. Yeah. Well, let's jump into your story, Matt. Uh, of course, a, a Boston Mass boy. And uh, yeah. what were you like as a little kid? I was a punk. <laughs> I gave my parents hell. Little hell, you know. What's crazy is I got, I got an 11-year-old son who's like an angel, and my daughter's six, and my daughter's me reincarnated. <laughs> she just tears things up, gets in trouble at school, bad attitude. Uh, so, um, I mean, from a young age, I, I got into trouble whether, you know, I had, had a mouth on me. Um, I was always trying to get into, like, the wrong things, always trying to push the limits. Um, for me, everything started with smoking a cigarette. I was 12 years old. We were walking home from school, and um, I had this 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 thing that I wanted to be a part of. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I wanted to to be liked. I wanted to be popular. I wanted the, the group of friends to accept me to fit in. And yeah. everybody, whatever we were doing, I was doing it. So when I was hanging out with kids that were playing baseball, I was down the baseball field seven days a week to an extreme. Mm-hmm. Basketball, I would sit at a basketball court and play till I had blisters on my feet. So now I'm 12 years old. I, I walked to school with this group of kids, same group of kids. And one of the kids pulled out a pack of cigarettes he stole from his mother. And he was like the alpha of the group. So one by one, he handed each cigar, each one of us a cigarette. And one by one, we lit it up, coughing on the corner. And that was like, that right there followed me with every step of my progression through drugs. It went from smoking to like, we were stealing beers out of the refrigerator, getting drunk at the side of barbecues, you know, when you watch yeah. like your parents and, and your parents' friends that like, you know, my father works really hard. He's miserable. And then he has a couple of wobbly pops and all of a sudden he's got a smile on his face and he's like the life of the party. Right. Yeah. Um, so like when you see that, it's like, all right, well, what does this do? Then you get this feeling. It makes you feel different. You like it. You enjoy it, whatever. Mm-hmm. So we started, you know, we started drinking, progressed to smoking weed. And uh, my freshman year, we started, you know, dabbling into like heavier drugs like ecstasy, special K, mushrooms and acid. I ended up getting kicked out of two high schools my freshman year because I was a classy kid. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I was just I was wrapped up in this lifestyle of like trying to get high, you know. Yeah. Now, uh, was there any hesitation with all that or were you just like, oh, yeah, let's rock and roll. Let's do this. Or was it kind of like, I don't know. It wasn't. it, it, It. Inside, I felt like that, but I didn't have the coverage to say it sure, all out. Sure, sure. You know what I mean? Like when somebody would present something and you look around and it's like, well, everybody's starting to do it. It's like, God, I can't say anything. Yeah. I don't want these dudes to, you know, my friends to make fun of me or I'm with like sure. a girl I'm trying to impress who if she's 100 percent into it, then it was like, all right, well, I have to. Then I don't want to yeah. be looked at differently. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, whether it was house parties where we we were introduced to these drugs. And I got all my drug education from my friends. So it was like, oh, here's this ecstasy pill. It makes you feel like pure euphoria. Try it. And then yeah. I would take it. I'd love the feeling. And they could put it down and I would keep doing it. Or right. how can I get it today? Right. You know? Yeah. It- and uh what were you saying? I would say, yeah, it takes away all that uh, w- when you do that people that, you know, normies, um, they don't realize what it is for, for us addicts is that it takes away any of the and all of those insecurities and the pain and all that that we feel when we're sober. It just it, it takes it away. And so it's like, you know, it becomes the solution to that problem at that time. Yeah. Well, it makes you feel whole. You know, mm-hmm. I had this like emptiness in my chest that I was constantly trying to fill, whether it was like sports growing up, like I was a, a half decent athlete. So making all star teams, playing in championship games, getting that type of attention. 
I needed it. So I went to an extreme with drugs. Like I was just trying to fill this void to not, you know, to feel, not feel or whatever. Uh, so I ended up in my third high school and I actually stopped using for a period of time. It was like the first time that I stopped, I stopped smoking cigarettes. I stopped doing drugs. I was playing basketball for the varsity team as a sophomore. I was the only sophomore in varsity baseball. Things were starting to like look up and my sophomore to junior summer, I got right back into doing drugs. I started doing Vicodin perks Ooh. and uh, I was 16 years old and I was introduced to this little thing called Oxycontin. Mm -hmm. And at the time, you didn't see uh, the homeless guy holding a Burger King cup, the heroin addict. Like You didn't see the, the consequences of, of the road that I was about to get on. Right. And um, I was at a house party. Kid broke out a couple of OC80s and said, this is like taking a few perks. And one by one, we all did it. Just the same way, the first time I smoked a cigarette, the first time I, I drank a beer, the first time I smoked weed, it was right back there around my friends and they made it easier for me to do things, even if I didn't want to. I was like, I don't know what this is, but if you're doing it, I got to do it because I don't want to be looked at differently. Right. And then when I did it, it was like, it was like the greatest feeling I ever had. It was like every, every struggle I ever dealt with, uh, everything just went away. You know, I had the confidence to hit on the hot girl. I could, you know, if I had a problem with, with somebody twice my size, I'd go and fight them. Sure. I mean, it literally made me feel like I was superhuman. And, you know, at the time, it was easier to get OCs than it was get than it was to get alcohol. Sure. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. you need to find a buyer, then they got to go to the packy, where a drug dealer is never going to ask you for your ID. They just want the money. Sure, yeah. And it started out as Friday and Saturday at house parties that we were doing this. But again, going back to how, like, normal people can turn the on and off switch, I couldn't. So it was Friday, Saturday. Well, what are we doing Sunday? Let me try to get it. Let me let me get some money to, to, to do it Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Then it's doing it every single day of the week. And uh, that kind of, that followed me, um, you know, until I got kicked out of my third high school two months into my senior year. And uh, I was in Massachusetts. My father was living in New Hampshire. So I moved in with my father to try to finish out high school. And nobody in the state of New Hampshire knew what an Oxycontin was. And my huh. disease drove me to to literally drive down to Massachusetts every couple of days to go and get some. Hmm, holy shit. And it just so happens there was this girl, Jenna, that lived about a block and a half away from where I was staying with my father that was from, like, a similar area in Massachusetts. And she knew what an Oxycontin was. I knew what an Oxycontin was. And we started going together. Mm -hmm. And every day, whatever we had to do, we started, you know, being the monkey that sold bananas. I mean, that was like a running theme is I would sell what I would do until things would, you know, go off the rails and, you know, try to lie, cheat, and steal to get whatever I needed to, to, to stay numb. Yeah. And uh, Did you ever run into any uh, uh, legal troubles at all? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. Um, I ended up getting an apartment when I was 18 right after I graduated. I had the OC task force raid my apartment. Um, I ended up just, I was in, I was in trouble from, from a young age with the court systems. Um, I had a chins put on me, which is like, uh, uh probation for a kid cause your parents can't handle you. Right. Um, cause my, my father had left and my mother was trying to raise me and my, my sister. And I was just like uncontrollable. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Getting into fights at school, uh, getting caught stealing from like stores. Like I just, I was like a reckless youth, and I had to try to try to like impress the people around me as well. So like I would do the most the most outrageous things just to get like the attention of others that like, oh, Matt's nuts, he's crazy. Oh, we got a fight, Matt's the first one running in, you know, trying to take people on that are bigger than me, get my ass kicked. So, <laughs> so do you, you know. do you feel like you know you were a rebellious kid and all that stuff? You know, got into a lot. Do you feel with your children that you might be a little overprotective now that oh yeah you know what i mean like, <laughs> i get mad because i feel like i'm raising my son to be soft sure and sure i'm like wicked protective where yeah. i was i was walking to school at like second second grade with a group of friends where like he's 11 uh-huh. and i'm like you need to call me when you get to your friend's house if you walk in there right uh, you know just from like the, the craziness that the things that i did i don't want him getting involved and anything and he sure. see like he knows my story he knows like i've been to jail like i i, I got high i did drugs i did bad things i've been very honest with them mm-hmm. yeah. and especially now he's at an age where like where i went off and started doing things like i i try to really preach to him be a leader not a follower right. when i was a kid i was a follower i followed whatever my group of friends did and it and i followed it right to to oxys to heroin to to a needle to programs to jails and like i want him to lead his friends to like a different path right and i try to like instill that in him that like the peer pressure is like huge especially at his age oh god and that he yes. can walk away from like you know if his kids are, if his friends are like hey try this now nah, my I've, I've learned from my father i can't do that or when drugs get into to play i tell him i have a drug test to tell your friends i got a drug test waiting at home and that my father's a psychopath and he's gonna drug test me. <laughs> yeah hey you know? i'm with you man i got i got two a son and daughter they're 13 months apart and been very honest with them about my struggles yep. my my situation just because hey uh take take my life you know dad's not a a perfect superhero take my life <laughs> as a as a cautionary tale um, because you know these things do run in our family, yeah. and uh, speaking of that, do you do you think that your parents' uh, separation caused a lot of some of your troubled it, youth? I mean, yeah, there's a bunch of things that that went into it. When my father, my father first left, I started getting into trouble, not like with drugs or anything, but like acting out in class. I was trying to be the class clown, try to get everybody to laugh. You know, I was talking reckless to teachers i got into a couple of fist fights like i looking back i was screaming for attention yeah you know what i mean and and wasn't really getting it until i got into trouble and when i got into trouble that's when everybody came home like my father would have to come um you know and handle whatever screw-ups i was dealing with and then when he ended up like leaving for good my mother just couldn't tell me anything like oh you you need me home at at whatever time like sure i'll be there and i would be out you know, hanging out with older kids, hanging out with these, you know, people that were doing the wrong thing. And I just wouldn't listen to any of the rules she put in place. And she ended up kicking me out when I was 16. So my junior year in high school, she ended up throwing me out. because She was just like, I can't handle it. You know, you're too, you're too much of a problem. And I know she didn't mean it. She was just like, she was at the end of her rope. Sure. She couldn't figure out what to do. But in my mind, I was like, oh, you don't want me there. I, that's fine. I'll figure it out. So my junior year, towards the end of it, I was couch hopping with friends. I was crashing in like the basements of my friends' houses where like before their parents would wake up, I would take off and just like, you know, get to school. Um, I had very limited like with what I what I ate, clothing. And that led me to like, 
you know, surround myself with like some of the older kids that were like selling drugs, I ended up becoming a guinea pig for them. So whatever they were selling, it's like, here, you take this. This is how you can provide for yourself. Go sell to like your friends. And that was kind of how like, you know, I fed myself. I clothed myself. Not that I was like a big time money making drug dealer, but I got enough to get by. Right. And, um, you know, so I going back to, to, to graduate, I ended up graduating cause I'm, I exceed at things when I put my mind to it and mm-hmm. I have the talent and I could just show up at school. I was smart enough to get through it, but I never applied myself. So I still graduated on time. I'm even going through four different high schools. But the day after I graduated, I, I left and went right back to the city. Uh, you know, Somerville, which is a city that was like riddled with Oxycontin, riddled with drugs, riddled with trouble, leaving like a nice small town in New Hampshire that I was living in. And I was back into like, you know, selling drugs, getting high every day. Um, I had this reputation that I wanted to keep up that I was like some big bad guy when the reality was I was a scared little boy inside and the drugs just was this facade that I could handle, you know, different situations. Cops kicking in the door, getting arrested, fistfights, you know, trying to survive in a, 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 an area where like everybody was doing drugs. Everybody was doing oxys. Um, back then, pharmacies had signs on them that said, we do not carry Oxycontin because people were running around robbing pharmacies Holy for shit. this mm-hmm. when they first came out. And um, so I ended up getting an apartment. I was one of my the first like group, one of the first kids out of my group to have like a spot. So we had people over there all the time, we, ton of drugs. I had this living room table that was stained with powder from Oxycontin that had strain. I had strainers on where people would just come over, buy a couple pills, break it out into a line and sniff them. Mm-hmm. And all the time, I'm thinking this shit is completely normal. My bad for swearing, but... No, no you're uh, good. good. We're uncensored. Cuss away. All right, we're... <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so I have these spinners out, you know what I mean? Like, all this shit is normal to me. Like, I, I all my friends get high. The, my roommates that live with me, we all do 80s. One kid worked, and me and the other kid kind of sold, and that was the way that we, you know, supported ourselves. And, uh, you know, it just, like, things started going downhill real fast. OC task force kicked in, kicked in our door. We got evicted. I ended up moving in with, with my buddy James sleeping on his couch. James had progressed to heroin. He was one of the first people. And, um, in this period of time, we ended up losing a kid, Danny Nunes to suicide, uh, who struggled with Oxycontin. And like, at that time there wasn't like, Hey kid, you're going to get clean or his recovery. Like there was, you know, we didn't really see a way out once we started getting sick and realizing that like we were, we were dependent on these things. So I I had a couple of stints and detoxes up to this point. And at the time I was a better than addict because I would end up in detox and look at the dope addicts. Like I'm better than you. I'm never going to end up in your shoes. How could you end up doing that stuff? Like my, my oxy just got out of hand. I, you know, I just need to calm down or the courts put me here because for whatever, you know, whatever the reason was. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I end up moving in with my, 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 one of my best friends, James and his family. And, uh, he was going through his own drug addiction. And, uh, on September 1st, 2004, he ended up hanging himself in the bathroom. Oh, damn. And oh, his mother, I was sleeping on his couch. His mother came in, woke me up and seeing that scene kind of, you know, it, it, it's something that's burned in your mind forever. Like I'll never get the image of that out of my head. Oh yeah. No, and, I can uh, imagine. I went on like just a suicide mission from there. Like I, 
I did not want to live. I didn't care what I did. Now the, So I was selling to my friends as a monkey that sold bananas because most of the money I was making went right to my habit. Right. Now I'm not selling. Uh, the crimes I was committing, I was running around robbing people. I was robbing little corner stores. I was doing whatever I could to get high and hoping that like through all this, something terrible would happen and I wouldn't wake up. Like for the next two years, I was hoping that like I just wouldn't wake up the next morning. And, um, you know, a period of, 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 of just complete recklessness. Um, Oxycontin started drying up in our area. Um, pharmacies weren't providing it. The dealers started going dry. Um, the, they pulled it off the market um, due to like the addiction that was happening. And, and at that point, it hadn't happened in like suburban America. It was like an inner thing. So like it didn't have where we're at now where like people talk about it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. when my parents were talking about my arrest, it was I was a low life loser. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, oh, he has a, a drug addiction. It's the drugs that are driving him to do these things. It was, what did you fail your child with? Right, right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, so at this period, um, I I, I was dealing with court issues from the apartment getting raided. I was kicking oxys, curled up like a baby, hot and cold sweats. And this kid came up to me and he's like, hey, this is going to make you feel better. And it was a bag of heroin. And through the whole time of like getting high with oxys, heroin has this dirty, filthy disgusting word right yeah. like when you guys were kids you heard a heroin addict you're like guys right, it's the it's the loser under the bridge it's the guy with a burger king cup at 7-eleven begging for change it's like yeah, yeah. it's not me not yeah. my face not my history and where i come from and at that moment in time all the stigma that was attached to heroin went out the window because the kid told me this was going to make you feel better and then i sniffed it and it was like, wow, why am I at that point? I was spending hundreds of dollars every day to get a handful of pills just to feel normal. Mm-hmm. And then I do this little bag of heroin for $40, which is the same as a couple hundred dollars in pills. I didn't, I never looked back on, I never looked back on, on doing any painkillers, hmm. any, any pain wow. pills. It was now heroin. And, uh, the early days of doing heroin, I still was like somewhat functional. Uh, I started middlemaning. Uh, you know, I had a dealer and I had people that needed it and I would middleman it to start. And then eventually I started selling dope and, um, it didn't last long. Um, but I moved it so I could stay getting high. And, uh, at this point, um, I ended up getting stabbed and a dude tried slicing my throat because I sold heroin and he didn't like, he didn't like, uh, you know, that I was doing that in the city. Cause uh, heroin is filthy. It's like selling death to kids, especially back then. Mm-hmm. And I got 30 stitches in my shoulder. You're not probably not going to see it on zoom, but he stabbed me in the shoulder and then went for my neck. And I swear to God, he hit it and that he, I felt it go across my neck and I was laying on the ground covered in blood. And I, I reached for my neck and he missed. Oh my and God. it was like gasping for air. And you figure things like that would stop you from like, hey, maybe I should stop trying to sell drugs. Maybe I should stop doing heroin. Or, or maybe I should really look at what I'm doing in this area. Maybe I should get out of it. Because the area I was in was just riddled with like activity like that. People getting stabbed, overdosing, people losing you know, their apartment. At this point, I'm couch hopping. Um, I had a girl that I thought was pregnant with my child, which it turned out not to be. <laughs> um, a couple, so just- two months after... 
two months after I got stabbed, right, I ended up getting arrested and set up and I had the knock unit, the, the narcotics offices ended up um, catching me walking out of the projects I was living in. And it was right after I got stabbed. So I thought I was getting jumped again because these dudes were all jacked up. Right, right. Yeah. All tatted up, big, bad, big, bad white guys. And uh, I ended up getting Billy Club in the back of the head, put down, put in handcuffs. And they searched me and found the dope. And they have money that the informant used to buy the dope off me. And I got hemmed up for, for class A distribution when I was 19 years yeah. old. Uh, so, so what resulted from that then, Matt? So I went to, I ended up doing about six months in jail. Um, in jail, I was telling everybody, I got this kid on the way, I got to get clean, you know, and, yeah. and I was still on trial. I ended up beating the OC, uh, um, the OC case, the distribution OC. Um, now the class A distribution case, I didn't beat it. Um, I got violated. I grew up with my PO's kid, my probation officer's oh, kid. So I got every single break you could imagine. Mm. Cause he always pictured me as the kid playing little league with his two, ne- with his two nephews, Tim and Jeff that were twins and this kid, John and John, who is his son. So he tried giving me every break being like, all right, you're struggling with drugs. I'm going to give you a chance. So now after I get arrested here, he's like, F this, fuck this kid. I'm <laughs> fucking tired of yeah. send him to jail, lock him up for a year see you later and uh he ended up getting rid of me and passing me to this guy damon banks that like uh went to bat for me mm-hmm. uh, really went to bat so i end up i end up in bill Ricker house of corrections i'm telling everybody the the entire time in there i gotta do this right i gotta stay clean because i got this baby on the way and uh the day the day i got out of jail the day before this kid was born I go to the hospital the day right from release. I get released from the house of corrections, drive right to the hospital. I got pictures with this kid and everything. And uh, about a month later, I find out uh, through a paternity test that, that I wasn't the father. Oh, oh shit. shit. Not that I was doing the right thing during yeah. that period. I was still getting high. I was chipping away. I'll get high for a couple days. I would try to like not get high when I would see this, the, the, the baby or whatever. But then when I got, when I, found out the results that I was I wasn't the father I was like alright word I'm celebrating I'm sure that <laughs> probably triggered a lot of let's oh, go party yeah. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I started I was shooting doping and coke at that time and I was just off and running yeah. back to that suicide yeah. mission I got nothing to live for anymore and um, you know it just it, it rapidly rapidly got worse um, there's only so often you can couch hop with people that care about you where they find needles in your cushions and their couch cushions or they walk into the bathroom and I got a belt around my arm and a needle in, in my arm mm-hmm. where they're like, I'm done with you. You know, my family wouldn't pick up the phone. Uh, you know, it was my own fault. Like it's not, it's not them. Like I, I had, I had the ability to tug on your heartstrings, manipulate you to get you to do whatever I needed. And then, you know, I would milk it for what it was worth until, you know, it came time to, to try to find the next person that I could crash for a few months or borrow some money or, or do whatever I could. And uh, so in this period of time, I'm on trial. I'm shooting heroin. I'm homeless. I'm wearing the same clothes for weeks. Didn't care about myself. You know, my friends, like they wanted nothing to do with me. The only person that I was, that I thought I was friends with was this guy, Boppy, that I bought dope off of because he would answer the phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. And, uh, you know, it was it was just a struggle, man. And every day, like I would try to do everything that I, everything that I was able to hustle up by the end of the night was gone 
hoping that when I passed out that I would die in the morning. Yeah. Right. Cause I just didn't want to live like that. I, I had a belt around my throat. I couldn't do it. I had a gun in my mouth and I couldn't pull the trigger. Like I could not suicide was not something that I had the courage to do. Um, so I wanted to pass peacefully in my sleep. And every morning I would wake up and I'd hate myself a little more every day that like, shit, yeah. I'm dope sick. I'm pissing out my ass. What do I got to do today? Mm-hmm. And I didn't, in, in the early stages when I had the, the ability to do things and hustle, like Oxycontin gave me energy, heroin, just like I was useless doing. Yeah. And, um, it was just a vicious, vicious, like I spiraled so bad. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in and out of detox, I get half for a couple of weeks, wear out my welcome, be homeless, end up in a detox for three days, get out, get the script of subs they gave me, sell it for my first bag of dope. Uh, just like this vicious cycle of, of not getting better. I'd end up at programs and in the programs I would I would get too scared because the dudes would be bigger than me. And when you remove the drugs, I'm this scared, insecure, self-conscious, fearful man. Yeah. And I don't know anybody. I don't know if I did something wrong. All these all these thoughts, all these these negative things would get me in a fight or flight situation and I would take off. Because mm-hmm. getting high was easier than trying to face like what you have to face. Yeah, right. well, so, when we when we start using it, Matt, and tell me if I'm wrong, but for you, the feeling I got is is that uh, once entering any period of sobriety, our growth is so stunted from the point we started mm-hmm. using that it's almost your, your your coping mechanisms are stuck in that age. So for you, it's like you're still you're still 12 or or 13 yeah. years old. Mentally I didn't know how to deal with anything, you know. And the way that I dealt with it was getting high. Like that became my normal. It was yeah. normal for me to be high. It was abnormal for me to be sober. Yeah. So I ended up hitting this breaking point. I was sleeping head to toe on a futon with my <laughs> with a buddy of mine, Eddie, that I got high with. His mother had just got out of jail. She had done five years for for something. And um, I used to give her heroin as my way of like paying rent. Mm-hmm. And my buddy Eddie ended up getting into this program called the Hamilton House in Dorchester in Massachusetts, a public halfway house. And every day he knew like I was on a suicide mission, that I was praying that I didn't wake up. So once he got into this program, every day he was like, Matt, you really got to come here. It's this great program. They really care about you. The place was a shithole in one of the worst neighborhoods in Boston. <laughs> and it was 26 guys with bunk beds and two bathrooms. Like it was, it was Shit. horrendous. But he was telling me every day, oh, you got to come here. And I was so sick that I went and visited him at this program where you're trying to get better. And I was high, nodding out. And I brought his little sister so he could see her. And he was just like, man, you need to you need to get your shit together, dude. You're falling apart. Like, you're not going to make it. And I had warrants out in court because at this point I was so scared to go to jail that I just wasn't showing up. And I was going to get high until they caught me. And um, I ended up waking up this morning. I was dead dope sick. And his mom... His mom was like, you got a fucking problem. You need to go and get help. And she loaded up she she loaded up a syringe in her arm, which is the one thing that would have made me feel better. And I remember I ended up going into the bathroom. I looked in the mirror and I just looked like death. I looked like a skeleton. I couldn't even tell you who was looking back. I didn't shower. I didn't brush my teeth. I was wearing the same clothes for weeks. Um, I, I just had nothing. And that day I was like, if I keep this up, like I'm not going to make it. I'm, I'm going to end up dead. And it was the first time in a few years that I was like, I, I really want to, I really, I really needed to do something. I got high one more time and ended up going 
walking from Southie to Brighton, which is uh, took me probably five hours to walk to this detox because I couldn't get on the bus. I couldn't get a ride. If I'm calling anybody and they hear my voice, they're like, yeah, I'm not buying your bullshit, Matt. You're not going to borrow money. Like, you're not going to borrow me to take money out of my purse. So take my wallet and help me look for it. Like, they, people were just done with me. And I ended up walking to this detox and I collapsed. They thought I was ODing when I got there. Uh, and I ended, up, I ended up sitting in the detox. I got out of that detox. I ended up getting into that halfway house. And it was the first, it was the first time like I actually stuck something out. And the owner of that halfway house went to court with me and stood in front of the judge and was like, this guy's 21 years old and his whole entire life, he's been addicted to drugs, been in trouble. It's like, this is, he clearly sold drugs to, to get high. Yeah. Like, why aren't you trying to, you know, why don't you try giving this guy a chance if he, you know, if he follows through with doing the program. And uh, over time, my probation officer ended up going to bat for me with the judge as well. And, uh, you know, I ended up pleading guilty and they, they, I'm a convicted felon for selling heroin. Um, I had to give my DNA because there were some other things that they were looking at me for. Not like, you know, through like some of the robberies, one yeah. of my best friends had, had got arrested for mass time robbery and they were trying to get him to turn on me. And he did five years upstate and um, I had to give DNA uh, I was on probation for five years. I had five years. I had five years suspended. I had to complete a six-month halfway house, eighteen months in a sober house, three-plus years drug testing. Lost my license for five years. I pretty much had to jump through hoops of fire. Yeah. And uh, you know, I'm very fortunate that that I had, you know, the motivation that I actually wanted to live. I had the court motivation that like I had done county time, but going upstate's a different story. I really didn't want to go there. And, uh, you know, I was, I was extremely blessed that, that certain things fell into place for me to get this bet because mm -hmm. I can't count how many times I actually wanted to get further treatment. And in detox, you get five days and they're like, all right, buddy, here's a list of shelters. See you later. Right. And I ended up, you know, things fell right into play where I ended up getting the bed. The guy went to bat for me. My PO went to bat for me. And, uh, you know, I was extremely blessed to, to, to be able to stay clean since that day. And in that halfway house, I rediscovered one of like my passions. So as a kid going through some of the, the struggles, I, I used to write poetry. I wouldn't tell people because, you know, people would uh, kind of make fun of you. Well, uh, you it, know, it comes roast. with that insecurity, right? Yeah. No, uh, abs absolutely. I know. I know what you mean. So now I'm in this house and I'm, the, I'm one of the youngest guys in this house. There's guys that are 6'5", all jacked up, that did 10 years getting paroled to this program. I don't have the ability to communicate my feelings and emotions of what I'm going through. I couldn't go to the 6'5 guy that was all jacked up and be and, and been like, yo, I'm having a bad day. Like, you want to talk about it? And uh, so I ended up starting to write what I was going through on a piece of paper. You know, different struggles. You know, when you get clean, you get hit with all this guilt and shame and you, you just see all these things. And then like friends that have passed away that I never grieved because I was getting high. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I was, I was consistently getting high. So I never processed any of these emotions. So now I'm just flooded with all these different things. And I started putting it down on a piece of paper and then through like my recovery, like going on, you know, that was my story of, of getting to rock bottom and, and now about getting out of it. Poetry has been like the biggest focal point for me in my recovery. Mm -hmm. Was there um, a point that, that do you remember what got you into poetry at, when you were in your youth? 
I just there there was a poem. Um, I forget I forget what the poem was now, but it was about uh, going two different roads. It was it was I think it was the road less traveled. Oh, okay. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was a poem that I read, and as a kid, I would write things that have like a different meaning to it. So like you would read it and be like, oh, this is so nice, but ultimately it was about like being alone or uh, you know just different things. Like like in recovery right now. You know, early on, I always talk about heroin as a female, because huh. like that was my met- that's like my biggest metaphor for it. Sure. So I'll share a couple pieces with you guys so you can get a taste of it. Please. But it's like having that alternative meaning where, like, for somebody that's not necessarily dealing with drug addiction, it's like, oh, you're sick and, and messed up over a girl that like is toxic for you. But like for me, it was that's heroin. Like right. that's yeah, yeah, heroin that I'm chasing or whatever. Well, and it's and, uh, it's um, probably easier relatable to people to to make it a love yep. story. You get like a beautiful woman or whatever, and you yep. can get them being enamored with it. But you know, for you in the way that it is, it's uh, you know, I, I can I can relate. I totally yeah. understand you you coming from yeah. it metaphorically. So I started, you know, I ended up having a child early on in recovery. I was working all these jobs, um, just trying to like put food on on the on the table. I didn't have a license, so I was taking buses and trains, trying to stay clean and sober at a young age. Like at that time, people didn't stay clean. They went to jail. Like young people in recovery wasn't like as widespread as, as it is now. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So one of the things that, that got me going is, is I started reading the poems to like my friends. Then I started putting them on social media. Then I ended up making like a couple of poetry videos about it and it started building and it ended up giving me like this platform and, and through poetry, I built like this following. Um, in 2015, I was given the recovery advocate of the year award in Massachusetts, which is like huge for somebody like me because usually it's given to some politician that doesn't really do anything for us yeah. it just sits pretty you know at the state house collecting government money right where you know i had one of my good friends that worked for the organization that gave it out handed to me like it was i've been blessed with like some really really cool cool opportunities that all stem from these little words that rhyme that people relate to right and uh, i put a book out in 2012 called the shadow of an addict i self-published it I had a book deal on the table and the book company kind of left me on the shelf. Oh, we need to find the right editor. And uh, at the time I was doing all these open mics. I was, I was building, I was getting paid as a feature. I was starting to get into schools and it was getting discouraging because I spent a lot of time doing it. And um, at this time, one of my best friends, he had just been released from jail. The kid who, who did five years for me. We lost his younger brother. It was us three growing up. Sparks died in 2011 uh, of an overdose. Dougie had started doing good now that he was out of jail. And I was at this point, I was ready to quit because I I was out there telling people I got this book coming out. I'm performing and poetry doesn't really pay you that much. It was very discouraging. Like my family was like, you're wasting your time. My son's mother was like, I don't want people knowing that that my son has, his father's a heroin addict. You know, a lot of people were trying to like you know, stop me from kind of getting it out there. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's and just the book seems fell to. Through. That seems to always happen when you're really wanting to open up. That that other people's fear gets injected yeah. too. It's hard to get yeah. get that overall support of understanding that for you and your addiction, you, you coming through it. That it's just something you had to do. It was in your head and in your heart. Yeah, and, and I got this. I got this motivating factor inside that I got to prove people wrong. Mm-hmm. Because even at a young age, people were like, "Oh, you're not going to stay clean." Or 
you're not going to stay out of trouble. I still have, you know, some, some of the cops that, that probably have a reason to talk bad about me saying, oh, he's going to fall off sooner or later. I guarantee it. And, uh, you know, I just want to, I was trying to prove people wrong, but at this point I was ready to quit. My best friend ended up giving me money, uh, loaning me a few thousand dollars to self-publish the shadow of an attic and buy a, a box of 500 copies of the book. And then I'm back to doing what I was doing, you know, when I was getting high, not drugs, but I'm selling books. I'm meeting you on a side street, <laughs> yeah. sliding the book out the window, grabbing $15 and then taking off. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I sold like 3,600 copies of it. Nice. Um, That's badass. It was it was a beautiful moment for my best friend that believed in me because he was like, we, we both came from real, you know, our circumstances weren't the best. He... I mean, his, he's gone now. He, he died in 2015, but okay. his, his father was a, a low life. His older brother died in a car accident. Sparky, who was our age, was his younger brother by a year. He died of an overdose. He ended up getting murdered in 2015. Holy shit. Jeez. At the time, I was ready. You know, he believed in me. He was at every event with me. Every time I won an award, he was front and center. And, uh, you know, where I'm at today doesn't happen if he didn't believe in me at that point to give me the money to, to, to get the books, to help my following. And, um, you know, it's something I try to carry his name and everything that I do. And so I ended up putting this book out. I sold like 3,600 copies. Now I'm traveling out of state to perform. Um, and I ended up getting an opportunity to work in treatment. Yes. I'm not, I'm not, I'm a, I'm a hustler. I work really hard. I chase things with the same mentality that I got high with, just not drugs. Right. Yeah. So I ended up, I ended up getting a couple of, of opportunities to work in treatment, and this this recent one was five years ago for Banyan Treatment Center. I met a guy named Joe Tuttle, and uh, he had heard my poetry, said I was a powerful speaker, and offered me an opportunity to come work for him, and that I would be able to partner with him and build a program in Massachusetts. That's so and great. Yeah, that's awesome. Coming convicted felon no education didn't get college unfortunately i was i was getting high at that time but um to get something like that uh that opportunity like i'm not gonna turn i'm not gonna turn that down yeah and uh, i took it and ran with it in 2016 indian treatment center in massachusetts opened up and uh we've been open for four years and i got like the most amazing staff we got incredible like i've the whole driving force is building a community of recovery for people that go through it mm-hmm. and uh you know it's just it's i've been blessed man i live like yeah. a, a such an incredible life uh, uh coming from where i come from and even like last night i was talking to to a good friend of mine and we were just i was rehashing these like insane stories of my my knucklehead youth where you know <laughs> You just look back and I'm like, man, I was, I was so retarded with the things that I was doing. And I'm so lucky I'm still here right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You it's, know, it's uh, amazing the shit that we would have done. Right. Yeah. And, and I got two beautiful kids. I got full, I got full custody of my 11 year old son, which for a man in Massachusetts isn't easy. Yeah. Uh, I got a six year old daughter that is me. That's going to be helpful. <laughs> she's going to be real difficult, but she's like, She's a sour patch kid. She's so sweet. She's so beautiful. And then she turns sour. Yeah. Gives her attitude. And uh, she's only about to be seven. So I got a long, long way to go with, uh, with her. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do, brother. Uh, Trust me. I know my daughter's about to be 11. And it's like, holy oof, shit, man. Oof. It's yeah, it's all of it. So uh, what what is becoming now a mentor meant to you? I mean, I could only imagine how rewarding it is 
when uh, people oh, are coming into the treatment center and you're going because because no one can put shit over on you. You've been there. You've uh, been at the brink. So it, you know what's that like of not only calling people on their shit but being loving at the same time. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the most incredible things that I've been able to do in life is, is you see somebody that comes in here broken, dealing with all these outside forces that they think they'll never get over and just trying to guide them to do the right thing. And then you see them, you know, I, I always tell this story. There's a guy that came in when we were first open and uh, he was a working addict, union job, wife, kids, wife had no idea, no clue that he was doing dope. Wow. And he ended up catching a, a, a OUI driving while he was high. Whole life completely spiraled out of control. His wife was going to sell the house. You can't see the kids. I'm divorcing you. He was on the verge of losing his job. Jeez. He cried in my arms like, I don't know if I can do this, Matt. Like this is, you know, I just don't know. I don't know what to do. And I was like, man, if you just do the right thing, stay clean. Like I can't promise you anything, but you never know what's going to happen down the road. You know, graduated our program, moved into a sober house. Then all of a sudden he was sleeping on the couch at his wife's house again. Then they were going on their dates, you know, spending time with the kids. I remember he sent me a text. He was like, man, today I got invited into the big bed. Okay. <laughs> such a victory for him. This, I'm telling you now, he's older than me too. He was like, you know, he's in his 40s. Yeah. He's like, man, she let me in the big bed. Right. It's those got, victories, got, man. It's those victories. He's got four years right now. That's like, badass. Not four, four years, coming close to four years. Got his house, the house didn't sell, got his, got his marriage back. And every time I see him, I just light up and yeah. I just give the guy a big hug. And it's just like, you know, it's just cool rooting for people. Yeah. I, for me, when I was trying to get clean, like you didn't have the type of support that was there now. I went to detoxes where they treated me like I was a piece of shit. Like I didn't already know I'm a scumbag that yeah. ended up in this place. Like I know I fucked up a lot. Where, you know, myself, my staff, we try to build people up and just, you know, try to guide and advise them and ultimately let them know, like, you have to be accountable for you. Like, this, yeah. your recovery is your recovery. You put in effort. You try to take, you know, the steps to get better. It's going to work for you. If you don't, if you half-ass it, you know, it's so much easier to get high than stay clean. For yeah. sure. It really is. Like, the drugs, alcohol, bars, all that stuff will always be out there. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's really difficult. It's really challenging, and it takes a lot of coverage to try to stay sober every day. Yeah. You know? Well, and the promise like, of the promise of sobriety too, and I know of of talking with people, and I remember um, this this gentleman. He he, hey young blood, let me talk to you here. And he goes, <laughs> I he he said, well, I can't uh, I can't promise you what your future is going to look like, but I can yeah. promise you you'll have a future with your sobriety. <laughs> and that was something that always stuck with me. Was that because, yeah. uh, you know, I, I thought that, hey, you know, my life's falling apart, you know, divorce, uh, you know, just yeah. it, it's like eventually Whole things just go downhill down and it'll be life. done. It'll be done. It'll be done. And everyone's circumstances is different. Mine not as extreme as yours, but all of us through addiction, it, it's extreme to us because we've yeah. had to fight that but inner that, battle all day. But that's the thing. Day. It's not about my bottom or your bottom. We each had our own bottom. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and, and my biggest thing is I don't ever try to compare what somebody else has went through to what I went through because your bottom got you to, to, to turn your life around or got you into a seat where, where we're trying to help you get your life back. It doesn't, you don't have to keep digging. You don't have to go further down. You don't have to make your circumstances worse. It's more about what can you do now? What actions can you take to try to, to try to move forward in life? You know what yeah. I mean? Getting your network, 
and in the supports. I mean, there's certain, you know, poetry was huge for me in recovery. Um, I played sports. I played in men's basketball leagues and I played flag football. I started doing the things that I enjoy doing, you know, before like getting high completely overran my life. Yeah. You know what I mean? Going to music concerts, venues, like, uh, we went on a bachelor party with all sober guys. It was 12 guys down to Aruba. <laughs> riding around on, on four wheelers, a bunch of knucklehead guys that they got sober, all from different backgrounds. Some worse, you know, you know, if you want to get into to, you know, our history, some worse, some better, some high bottom drunks, right. some low life heroin addicts, and here we are having the time of our life, sober, not not getting banged up, enjoying like island life together and just sitting there soaking it in, like, man, I used to sleep in project hallways of the Boston Commons and and I'm sitting on an island like enjoying life. Yeah. With people that aren't there to get over on me, that aren't there to like, uh, Matt, let me let me borrow forty dollars or hit up your connect and let's rob them. Like, yep. they're not using me for anything. We were there on genuine friendship, just genuine. Yeah, yeah, you that's know? awesome. And that's it's, dope. It's things like that that like you know, I have some really, really. I'm blessed with like a good group of friends, some really solid people, and, and I've crossed paths with some amazing people. You know, one of my best friends is Brandon Novak. That I'm pretty yeah. sure he just didn't did a show with you yeah uh-huh. and watching him grow over the last few years and and seeing the things that he's been able to accomplish have been like such a beautiful beautiful sight and to have him in my life that like you know i i can guide him and, and support him and vice versa i mean that's like you know that's what it's all about having just solid solid people that care about you and that you can call at any time mm-hmm. and they're yeah. gonna pick up well and i think that's the message that we want to leave uh, every time you know, we have someone on that their adversity that they've turned into the advantage like you have of now helping others, mentoring others and accepting, uh, you know, being a uh, mentor, you still having them is that th- that sense of community that you want, that connectivity, it is out there. That's what knocking doors down is about is you're not alone. Oh, there are people that are there. There are people that aren't users that don't want to use you that uh, you can build a good and prosperous life. But, uh, Matt, I want to talk a little, a little more about music. So you sent us this yeah. track, On My Way. Tell us yeah. wh- how this came about, because we we're going to throw it here on the podcast uh, as we ra- when we so, wrap up. So I do, I do like, uh, a ton of features on music, whether it's, mo- it's more hip-hop than rock. Mm-hmm. This yeah. is the first time I featured on like a rock song. And... Uh, uh, when I was younger, I liked Papa Roach, Breaking, Breaking Benjamin. I liked certain bands, and it had this feel. Uh, this artist, Scott Plant, had this feel of, of something similar to that, a stain, very talented guy, amazing voice, incredible performer. And uh, we had done a couple of events together, speaking, him performing his music, me performing my poetry, and uh, he wanted to, to do this track. And he gave me like the idea that he had behind it and was like, yo, write your part. I'll come up with mine. Let's put it together. And, uh, you know, it's going on his next album. And we've talked about doing some other things that have like a similar, similar feel to it. Cause he's in recovery. He struggles with like wicked bad bipolar. He did a ton of time in jail and music is his outlet. And, um, you know, it just, what we both stand for, it it really worked well together for us coming together. And this song hasn't been released yet. And, um, you know, I figured you guys, what, what, what a better opportunity than trying to, you know, see what people, you know, what their opinions are on it and, uh, you know, put it out there. Absolutely. Um, it's, you know, it's just, cool. it's, it's going back to like, you know, different therapeutic tools, man. Poetry, yeah. writing, that's mine. Performing, him, music, playing the guitar, singing, like that's, that's something that helps him calm like the voices in his head. You know yeah. what I mean? Mm-hmm. 
All right, well, the let's throw it out there. To us in our own voice. We're going to throw it out there for the audience right now and uh, check it out, guys. I got caught up in Lucifer's lies. Couldn't escape the sins that have me feeling like I've been crucified. Hopelessly contemplating suicide, because nothing will fill the void of this emptiness that I'm feeling inside. I can numb it for the moment, covering all this part of the broad emotion before the battle scars of my heart are ripped open. For the fact that I allowed my soul to be stolen, I didn't even put up a fight. Living in darkness, chasing the light Who knows if I even make it through the night This can't be life There's gotta be something better than this it feels like I fell in the black abyss I'm just so lost in hope I don't know if I'll ever find my way As I let more and more of myself slip away From all the mistakes that I made It's like I'm digging my own grave For a lost soul that needs to be saved
I will rise out of the fire's flame Reborn in a world that will never be the same From the ashes of my old life I had everything to gain I went to war to save my soul And I survived by letting go Accepting the bitter truth that I have no control That I needed to stop feeding my ego Out of the depths of hell crawling back to life Out of the darkness I started chasing the light Refused to make the same mistake twice Cause I don't think I'll get another chance to get it right The weight of the world fell off my shoulders at last There's no more puppet strings attached No more being the prisoner of my past I finally found freedom from everything holding me back Re-emerging from the wreckage of everything that I burned to the ground On stage surrounded by my demons Screaming from the crowd Face to face with my fears and there's no backing down I gotta do this right It's time that I take back my life now That's cool. Thank you for sending that to Mikey and our and myself and for letting us get it out there to the audience. Um, it's always a, a pleasure. And I know that I've been, uh, you know, turning some different inspirations for music. For instance, we had uh, Scott Stapp on not that yep, long ago. That. And, you know, his song Survivor's kind of become a good theme for me. It's even yep. uh, one of my morning wake-up songs. And so, you know, uh, I dig it, man. I dig it. Oh, yeah. Matt, so if there's uh, anything that you want to leave the listeners with, as well yeah. as how they can find you, connect with you, check you out on uh, yeah. on social media and such, um, but uh, any closing message that you have for the listeners and knocking doors down? I mean, anybody out there that's struggling right now, like you, you have a chance and your life can get better. You just got to give yourself that shot, try to reach out for help. Um, you know, recovery, this side of things is, is a hell of a lot better than the insanity of waking up, using, sick, dope sick, kicking alcohol, the lying, cheating, stealing, the, the, the mask that we have on, but we got to keep up with the lies. Like, you don't have to live like that anymore. And, and, you know, I know it's not easy and it's a difficult path, but when you when you take the chance to get clean, and you give yourself that shot. Like, life, I, I can guarantee if you stay sober, life will get better. Mm. You just got to give yourself that chance, give yourself that shot. And, uh, you know, we have amazing people out there that, that can show as an example shows like this, um, you know, different speakers, there's different resources online. If, 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 if you're hurting and you're not ready yet, I mean, just listen to somebody's testimony on, on the highs and lows of their life and you're going to find inspiration and you never know, like you could turn your life around and be that next inspiration for somebody that's out there using right now. So if people want to connect with you, Matt, how can they find you? Yeah. Check out um, your you stuff. If you want to search Matt Ganim on YouTube, there's a bunch of different videos, um, performances that I've done, poetic videos. On Facebook, it's facebook.com backslash Matt Ganim Poet. Um, on Twitter, I don't really use Twitter. Uh, it's Matt Ganim underscore Poet, and it's the same thing with Instagram. But Instagram is like about my kids and my dog at this point. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't put as much uh, performing material out there. But if people are interested in like my poetry, um, my writing page, I'm constantly putting up material, constantly up, you know, old stuff, you know, showing where like the events that I have coming up are. I mean, I was supposed to actually be out in California for events. Oh, we're out. Uh, to shit. speak. It was it, a DEA conference. There was two oh. different conferences. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Got. One was, um, where the hell was it? It was flying into, not LA, not LAX. Uh, Burbank. Burbank. Yeah, Burbank. Okay. Uh, it was in that area. One was an hour up, one was an hour south. Gotcha. And, um, yeah, unfortunately, coronavirus kind of kind of yeah. ruined public gatherings. So. Well, hey, when this shit lifts, you get out this way, you let us know, and we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll get together, cool to man. Connect, man. Get some I'm coffee or something. Yeah. 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 All right, Matt. So, we appreciate your time, brother. Hey, Keep up the great work. Thank you. 
Man, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to trying to build with you guys in the future. So yeah, absolutely. Definitely, definitely be in touch. Knocking doors down. Real people, real stories, real life. Real discussions of life struggles, including addiction, relationships, finances, and more. But even more importantly, living with them, overcoming them, and conquering them. Celebrities, experts, and everyday people talk about how they were able to break through whatever life handed them by knocking doors down. New podcast episodes are available every Thursday. Subscribe now on the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio app, or at kddmediacompany.com. Well, there you have it, Matt Gannam. Great guy. Mad, wicked, smart. Wicked good interview, man. Wicked. Uh, so cool to talk to. I, I just love Boston accents. But what an inspirational man, uh, what he's done with his life. And really, through his art, uh, found a way to express himself. All those insecurities that, that he had bottled up as a child. And now to go into adulthood, it not only be a gift to other people, hopefully inspiring them, but doing all the great work with the treatment centers that he is. And, you know, we didn't really get as deep into it, but he really, you know, he's leading a treatment center and, and helping people turn their life around, find true connectivity and honest connectivity, a safe connectivity that's not through substance abuse or any other kind of traumatic actions, illegal stuff. It's... It's inspiring. I know I said this before with our guests, you know, with like a Tony Hoffman or a Chris Jensen or something like that, but it, it's a really, it was really therapeutic listening to him speak, like just the way he talks and, you know, says everything about, you know, what he's been through and whatnot. It's really just like he paints you that picture perfectly. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just like, damn. But yeah, it was awesome to have him on. I really enjoyed talking to him. Yeah, and I dug the music too. That was pretty oh, cool. Oh, yeah, his got, music's sick. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty cool that we got to share that with you guys and got the permission to do that and play it here on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, we got some more great guests still uh, headed your way on the Knocking Doors Down podcast. We'll have Morgan Rose's Seven Dust coming for you guys really soon. So that's going to be awesome. And then an amazing lady, Amanda Webster, who is literally standing on the edge of a balcony about to take her life. She had a very bad run of addiction. Uh, sexual abuse, childhood trauma, a loss of loved ones, and uh, her story is nothing short of inspirational how she's been able to turn her life around and motivate people as well. So those are great episodes coming up. And, of course, don't forget you can go to uh, our sponsor, 5150LTM.com. Not only can you pick up the apparel there, get all the clothing, the gear that Mikey and I wear here when you see us uh, on the videos that's on our social media. Of course, all Knocking Doors Down on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Knocking Doors Down. So pick up the gear. And, of course, we got the energy drink that's available now for a limited time uh, while supplies last at a reduced price with all those proceeds benefiting the Carlos Vieira Foundation and its three programs. Get yourself energized for cheap. That's right. And, of course, those programs Race for Autism, the race to be drug-free and race to end the stigma. For more on the Carlos Vieira Foundation, which we're so proud to work hand-in-hand with, go to carlosvierafoundation.org. Anything else, Mikey? That is it, people. We will see you next Thursday. All right. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for spreading the word. Share the podcast with your friends. And while you're at it, Ed, if you're listening to us on Apple Podcast app, leave us a five-star review and a rating. It helps us climb up the charts and gets more people to know us. And we appreciate you guys. Keep knocking doors down. The Knockin' Doors Down book shares all the history and inspiration behind the Carlos Vieira Foundation and how it all started. 
All proceeds from the book benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation's Race to Be Drug-Free campaign. So what's that all about? Through the Race to Be Drug-Free campaign, Carlos Vieira Foundation raises awareness about drug abuse, donates to drug-free programs, and brings drug-free speakers into schools to educate youth. The Race to Be Drug-Free campaign's main program is the Gloves Not Drugs boxing program. This program is completely free for kids between the ages of 8 and 17 to learn discipline, strength, respect, camaraderie, and the art of boxing and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. The program was created to keep kids off the streets, out of gangs, and away from drugs. For more info and to get involved, check out carlosvierafoundation.org. This podcast contains the views and opinions of the knocking doors down hosts and their guests to the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is sharing their unique perspective, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments suggestions, or correction of errors. Privacy is of the utmost importance to us. For those wishing anonymity, people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect confidentiality at the request of certain guests. This website or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with their content establish a doctor-patient relationship. If you find any errors in any of the content of this podcast or blogs, please send a message through the contact page. This podcast is owned by KDD Media Company.